What do you mean you shoot portraits on? I don't really do portraits. Party? The things. The thing is, I don't really. It's kind of indicative of my uh, personality, but I don't really care about people. This is episode 30. Wow. Episode 30 is the 31st episode of the Public Function Show. Welcome to the show. I just want to take a minute. I heard a trick about podcasting that I want to do. I want to shout out everybody who is listening to our show right now who is washing the dishes. Mm, I do. I listen to podcasts while I wash dishes. Walking the dog. I don't have a dog. Doing the laundry. Mm-hmm. Waiting at the DMV. Mm-hmm. And probably driving to and or from work. Oh, I do that all the time. All of you people listening and all those you forgot about, scenarios. You forgot about one more. What's that? People who are exercising right now. Oh, yeah. Get that. Are we, are we an exercise type of podcast? I don't know. I listen to tech podcasts when I exercise. I, just, I actually know that's true. I listen to whatever podcast I'm... Yeah, whatever I'm currently for. listening to, I listen to. I'm not always in the mood to listen to a podcast while I'm working out. But if I do listen to podcasts, it's just whatever podcast I'm listening to. So that makes sense. Why are you not in the mood? What are you doing with your workouts? Well, sometimes I want to listen to music. Mm. I just like walk outside and well, I'm like you know lifting weights and being a bro and stuff. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit. Tell me more about your broing. Do you do you yell when you lift? You're like no, because that's actually a safety hazard for other people around you. What? Yeah, because if someone else somewhere who do you have like like, gym culture like ingrained in you right now? No, it's an etiquette thing. There's a whole gym etiquette. Do you wipe your gym your gym equipment down? Well, my new gym that I just joined actually has towels. So yeah, you should. Why not? Why wouldn't you? I don't know. When you go to like 24 hour fitness, they don't always, they don't always well, provide towels. Better gym. Well, I don't have a ton of money. Gym? What kind of gym do you think I'm enjoying? How much, how much, how much does your health cost? Like how much is your health worth? Well, there's two things about health. You got to find the time to do it and then you got to pay for it. Those are two different things. And if you don't pay attention to it, you get less time and, uh, uh, more money that you have to spend on your health anyway. So yeah, but sometimes you don't have the money or time to exercise. Depending on what stage of life you're in. It's either one or the other. You either don't have time or you don't have the money. If you have a lot of time. You got to focus on things in your life. They're important. Things. You got to yeah, choose no, totally. things to focus on in your life. But America is structured in a way where you have to work all the time. America. So, you know, we live in a, we live in a great place. America. Anyways. So, remember last week how uh, you future sold me one of your cameras? I did. I kind of... Don't change your mind. You have it on layaway. No, I'm not changing my mind. Okay, cool. I've actually already thought of what I'm going to spend the money on. Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to get it. I, I didn't take any photos with it, but I did see that. I read some reviews on it. Yes. I think it's a, you're, you're giving me an amazing deal. I won't tell anybody else because they're going to try to undercut me, but um, it's a great deal. I'm probably going to get a new lens for it. Yes, you should. Go with any, any of the Sigma lenses, the 16, the 24, the 30... I think they have a 50. You're such a nerd. Such well, a nerd. I mean, I, I did all this nerd research. camera nerd. I mean, you know how no, I am kidding. when I go to buy expensive things or like, yeah, buy that's stuff. why I think this it's is a, stuff I do. I think it's a, I think it's a good deal that I'm inheriting your change of decision. Yes. I think it's a good camera. Yes. I was thinking about getting the 24 millimeter F 2.8. I think it is. The Sony it's one the, or the Sigma one? This Well, whichever, but I think the Sony one is supposed to be really good for street photography, which is what I mainly want to use it for when I travel. The zoom, the 24, the 70 it's a fixed. 24. It's a 
Fix Fix Ooh. 24. The, to, the, to, um, the Sony 24 is an older one. Mm, whatever one it was, don't quote me. I have it in my computer's tabs open right now. Do you like to go wider or closer typically? Because I might recommend you a different lens if depending um, on your answer. The thing is, is that I usually, what I usually rock when I walk, when I walk with my Nikon, when I have walked with my Nikon, I was using a 50 millimeter 1.8. And that's a full frame 50. No, mine, mine is an ASPC. It was a full frame. Yeah, I think it was a full frame lens but my camera's ASPC. So it was like 70. The, the, the Nikon was a seven? Or was yeah, it and ASPC? I didn't always use it because uh, it, didn't, it didn't get wide enough. Okay, so you want to go wider than that. Well, it, most of the time it worked, but then occasionally, I don't want to carry two lenses, but I don't want a zoom that sacrifices Right, your, any of your ends. zooms would be in between. The other one that people were saying is you can get the Sony, there's a 30 millimeter, I think. Like yes. 32 or something. Sigma weird also makes a 30, which... All right, well, you know what? You just send me a list of No, lenses. the Sigmas are at least as good or, bet, or better than the equivalent Sonys, and they're cheaper. Okay, That's well, why. So the Sigmas are actually a legitimate alternative that you want to look at. My understanding is that the Sigma 16 1.4, I think, is... Literally one of the, like, the only three lenses you should buy for that camera. That is my uh, understanding. Is Roughly. I wanted to look it up. He's looking it up. We're looking it up. He's not talking to the mic, but he's looking it up. But either way, while you do that, so I looked at that. Um, I think I'm going to get a different lens just because I, I like primes, and I think it would be the perfect camera to have a couple primes that are good distances. Yes, like it is. Is a good fit. Something that's around a 70 and something that's around like a... 50 or 30, like something that's a little bit wider and then maybe like an actual wide, like a 18. Yeah, so... ESPC equivalent. But that's three lenses and I don't want to carry three lenses. 16 F1.4 DCDN contemporary lens for Sony E-mount cameras with advanced... Fo oh, not the bundle. You don't want the bundle. Sigma 16 millimeter mm -hmm. F1.4 DCDN contemporary lens for Sony E. That's how many titles again? $389. Thought. But... The equivalent Sony is probably a good 40, 50% more than that. Hmm. That's the thing. Well, the Sony lenses for this system tend to be pretty pricey, and also they don't update their ASPC size ones as often. You can technically buy the full frame size lenses, which the Sony full frame lenses are amazing. All of them are fantastic. So if you have like an A series, uh, like an A seven series, A seven S, A seven R, A seven nine, any of those, then you want to go Sony full frame glass. It is expensive. You can't technically use it on ASPC sensor, but it, you don't get the full. Yeah, I was reading about it. It only uses like the center of the. You wouldn't get it. Wouldn't, it's not worth it, essentially. Yeah, it only uses like the center of the glass or whatever. Yeah, but so but Sigma will cover you. Sigma's got the 16. It's got a 30. I want to say it has a 50. Is that a 16 on an ASPC? That is or a is 24 mil full frame equivalent. Yeah. See, the thing is, I would want an actual wide, like you want under 20. Well, if I was going to do. Like I want something that's like a like a thirty millimeter for just walking around a city. I think is the right lens, 16, right? Eighteen, eighteen will probably do that. Somewhere in there, we'll probably do that okay. for you. And if you want to go wider than that, I do like doing wide. When I'm in a city walking around, I like doing wide shots of buildings. So, like in the in the alleyways of Italy and stuff, you need like a really wide lens to get good shots. This is the dilemma that you're going to run into mm -hmm. at that point. Is that if you want to go that wide, where you're going? 10 mil, 12, 12 mil. Not, not well, that's, like that's the ASPC wide. size. So you're looking oh, at okay. 16 to 18. Yeah, something like that. Full frame equivalent. 
Uh, I don't want to fish eye. You're looking at either the Sony, which I think they make a 10 and a 12, which are again, both are expensive and they're not very fast or updated glass. Or, or you can go value and buy a lens that is like, I think the Samyang 12 mil is like under $200. Manual focus though. I feel like that would be okay. For the wides. For the wides. For architecture, yeah. I feel like I that would work be for okay. you. I think that would be okay for you. Yeah. So we'll have links to all these lenses, every single lens. Oh, all lenses all the lenses in the world. But the one that I would not want, I want the 30 mil equivalent. The one that you're walking around with most of the time, I want that one to have stabilization and be autofocus. And then the other lens that I would get much later, because I don't really care too much about it, would be a portrait lens, like a 70 mil. And then that's it because anything, yeah, those are all, anything I mean, those longer, are, you just listed out all the lenses that anybody would have. <laughs> no, because I do nature photography with my Nikon and I have a 70 to 300, but I never really, it's a good lens, but closer to the 300, it's not as uh, sharp. Yeah. It's only really sharp at like 200 millimeters. It's really sharp at 200 millimeters. It's yeah. like a $500 Sony or sorry, $500 Nikon lens used to be. I don't know how much it is now. Um, I use that one a lot to do a lot of nature photography and it works pretty well. But when you, when you really need to shoot like a picture of a bird and they're really far away and you zoom all the way out to 300 mil, that'd be sharp. It's gotta be sharp. And it's, it's not sharp, always that sharp. Then you got to yeah. put it on a tripod and then you're like sitting there in the bushes for like 20 years trying to get the bird to land in front of you. And it's, I don't know, it's a different, it's a different story. So I think with this camera, my goal is to have a city walkable camera with just my, with just one lens. Ideally, just one lens, and maybe then maybe two. in the backpack there's the wide, or and then and then the portrait lens. I would only really use. I mean, I don't really do a lot of portraits. Like also, crop sensor is not great for portraits. I mean, it's doable, but it's. Well, I always have the know, the, weird. the Nikon has. If I really wanted to do portraits, my Nikon fifty millimeter is a full frame lens, so I think it's about seventy millimeters. That's the one that you want, yeah. And it's a one point eight. Yeah, that's and the one it's you like want. a super sharp Nikon. Yeah, that's which a lot of bokeh. So if I was actually going to do a portrait shot, I would probably just pull out the Nikon because then you're doing a tripod anyways, and the camera size doesn't matter. So sometimes, like I just like I'll walk around and maybe snap a picture of my girlfriend or something, and that could be done with a 50 mil. It just wouldn't be like the 70 mil perfect bokeh for portraits. You shoot portraits on a tripod? I don't really shoot portraits, but I thought you did. Uh, what are you talking about? You shoot portraits on them. I'm trying to do my stuck up photography face. Well, I what do you know. mean you shoot portraits on? I don't really do portraits. I, the things, the thing is, I don't really. It's kind of indicative of my uh, personality, but I don't really care about people. <laughs> like <laughs> I do of my girlfriend. Like every once in a while, like the light will hit just right, and I'll take like a great photo of her. I have a lot of photos like that. Um, but other than that, like I, I don't take pictures of anybody else but her. Like. And only randomly. She always wants me to. She always like, says, here, take a picture of me or do, do a selfie. And I'm like, come on, man. Come on. I, I have the opposite problem where I take too many pictures of my girlfriend and she has to mm. tell me to put the camera away sometimes. Yeah, see, I'm the other way. She has to but, tell me to picture, take pictures but, of her. But, 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 in my defense, I've gotten some fantastic pictures of her. Yeah. Just by random, but just by, and it's a numbers game, right? You have to take tons of pictures to get a handful of good ones. Yeah. She always gets mad at me because I don't take good enough pictures of her. And... Tough life. The key is to not, the key that I it's found to not is, try to, to. is not try to and yeah. not set up for it. Yeah. She's always like, Hey, take a selfie of us right just here. And randomly I'm like, take pictures. why don't you just like walk around and do things and I'll take the photos of you when I want to. And then every time I do, she's like, oh, it's an amazing photo. And I'm like, yeah. Yes. 
called Candid Photos. Spontaneative life. Yeah. Anyways, so I think for this camera, my main goal is because I, I never take cameras with me when I travel. So I went to Italy and I came, I went with just my moment and I never pulled my moment out of the bag because it was just like... It's a little... It's it was like, cumbersome. It's a little fiddly. It's a little... It's like it's another thing. You got to take the, the yeah. caps off. You got to do the thing. And I also don't... Like, the thing that is really annoys me is I had the... I had the battery photo case for my 8 Plus. And the, also... The original one from Kickstarter. Yeah. And I liked my 8 Plus's camera more than my... Uh, whatever the heck the new one is. X Plus. X15R. Whatever the heck the new one. I don't even know what the new one's called. But I liked the 8 Plus camera more because this one technically takes better photos. But there's just something about it that I don't like. There's no such thing as better photos. There's a matter of taste. There, no, like a, it, there, like there scientifically, is a bit. it takes better photos. There's a little bit of that, but there's also some. That's part of why I switched to Fuji is because, uh, just the the way that the controls are for one, and then two, the color science mm-hmm. of those film simulations in there. Oh, so much. Mm. And there's more than one for different situations. So you have one that's a, a little bit more punchy. You got one that's very contrasty, leaning towards like super black blacks, and then you've got classic chrome which like you can't you can't really explain classic chrome to people it's kind of it's kind of in between like it kind of just combines all these perfect things and just like it becomes mm-hmm. more than the sum of its parts you know what's funny it's is beautiful it's this great. is actually one of the things that and this is full disclosure for everybody listening this is just me being an amateur but this is why i actually didn't like my nikon as much the colors required you to either really know I think it's partly the glass because the only lens that I have for my Nikon that's very good glass is the 50 millimeter 1.8 yeah that is part of it that's actually a huge part of it and it that lens takes photos where I'm like okay that looks very good but from the normal kit lenses like the DX they call them the Nikon DX lenses some of them I, they just don't pull very good color out of anything. And it requires... One of the things that annoyed me about the Nikon is that... And I know this is me. Everybody who's listening who maybe knows about photography and is like, you're wrong. I know it's me. But I would take a photo and the color wouldn't look good. And I couldn't... It just wouldn't pull the color out of it. 100% your fault, Craig. Probably. Fine. Fair. I said it. I prefaced it. Probably me. But the color wouldn't pop out of it. And it was never like... It was never like I was so impressed. And I think part of it was because the Nikon, I have the D7000, and I don't think that those kind of lenses had as much processing as the new ones do. Like this, And the, the crazy thing is, the it's not that crazy, but the processor that's actually in the 7000 is a Sony processor. Yes, mo- a lot of cameras are rocking Sony processors. Yeah, it has the XP3, like whatever, they call, they've trademarked whatever, put a name on it, but it's a Sony sense, a Sony processor and sensor. But... I don't know. I just it just never really popped for me, and I took like one photo of my office with the the A sixty five hundred, and I was like, "There's the color." Like I don't know what it is. It's like I think it's partly because the Sony is more of like a, it's more like a it's more like a smartphone than it isn't, and there's a lot of processing in it. Yes, and I think it just knows how to pull the colors out of things, whereas the Nikon would take things very neutral and correct. And then you would pull the color out of it in processing, which I know you can do because people take tons of amazing Yeah, but photos. who wants to do that? But that was the thing. And you can set up profiles inside of um, 
what is it, Adobe Lightroom, you can set up profiles that match your lens and match you like, you know that it's a little bit dull. So then you attach a profile to it. And I just like never wanted to do that because even if I were to like go in Lightroom and be like, okay, I took these hundred photos today, please automatically process them, which Lightroom is very good at. Like, applying. it can, yeah, the auto is actually good, it's but it's good. not going to be exact and it's not going to be what you want every single time. No. And, and so you have to go through every single one. I've done this mm-hmm. on this. Yeah. I'm holding up my phone because that's the only device that I own that runs Lightroom. So, wow. Um, I've done that and I've decided that I want to limit that much stuff as much as possible. So I use. The, you know, I just thought of something. Profiles in my yes, what? Yeah, I just thought of something. You were the perfect customer for an iPad Pro. Let's just let that sink in because you can run Photoshop and Lightroom soon. Photoshop and do all of our audio recording for this podcast on iPad Pro. Yes, I know. You've been thinking about this. Yes, I know. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah, Yes, I know. I understand. Okay. It might be like the perfect device for you. You're actually 100% correct because there are other podcasters I have listened to that are also equally kind of indifferent on Apple who have tried and gone, this is, is it. an amazing device. You could also get the pencil. I don't care you, about the pencil. You can use the pencil to spot touch up photos in Lightroom. I don't even edit that much is what I'm saying. Well, maybe you could. I do. I do. You, uh, it, you could do that. Do a little bit of light, a little bit of colors. That's it. No, but like they're... When you when you decide you want to be a little more creative, you can do that. But the point is, I can do that with my iPad because my iPad is the base model, whatever iPad thing I'm a jiggy. I don't know what it is, but what they call it these days. But it's the base one, and it has the old pencil, but it's good enough to allow me to use Lightroom. I actually, in the, okay, so that gets into what I originally brought this up for. So Sony has an app that you can transfer photos directly from the camera over Wi-Fi to your phone. Yes, that app notoriously has one star on on iTunes. Very slow. Very bad. But funny enough, two months ago, they released a new version of that app that works better. It's not called Sony Online Experience or whatever anymore. It's called... That's hilarious because uh, Fuji did literally the exact same thing. I think it was two months ago. They released a new version of the app and it's like way better. This one is called Image Edge Mobile. So it's not the like mm. play memory store or whatever. It's not the play memory store. And it's better. But the only thing I noticed that I don't like about it is it doesn't transfer the raw photos through the Wi-Fi. No, it can't because raw photos are raw files are huge. The the, the uh, Fuji app also does not transfer mm. raw files wirelessly. Well, but the thing that's cool about this, the thing that's cool about the having the there's the photo I took of my office. The um and I transferred that from my from the camera. Well, your camera, I haven't paid you for it yet. From your camera directly to the iPhone, but it's a, it's a JPEG. But I could drop it in Lightroom and edit it directly on my phone. And like I was looking at this and I'm like, the color coming off of this looks perfect to me. And it's poppy enough. And it's, yeah, the light was a little bit, um, it was a little bit like in the middle of day light. You know, it was bad white balance, but the colors look good. It's a little bit blurry because I don't think I focused very well. But I don't know. I'm happy with it. So... I'm pretty happy that I can I can take it with me traveling and I can transfer the JPEGs directly because it takes yes. raw and JPEG and transfer them directly yes. to the phone and then pop them on Instagram, which is cool, a really nice feature. Yes. And also I'm going to get the SD card to freaking lightning adapter. That's $9 million. <laughs> we'll probably get a knockoff one, but for the iPad so that when I go traveling, technically all I have to take is my phone, my iPad, 
and the A6500 and I can do everything. All good, yeah. And I can take the pencil with me and I can do, if I wanted to, I could do spot edits. Um, and sometimes it's just nice to control the Lightroom interface with the pencil, but I can do all that. So if I, if I get like one good, I want one good prime lens for it. And then the zoom is probably fine for now. So I'm going to pick up like zo- one yeah, zoom. The zoom that it came with was, so that zoom that it's a good, it came I with is it the up. 18 to 135. It was the new kit zoom at the time, yeah, which was a little over a year ago. It was around this time last year. The camera was made in 2016, which is amazing. Camera's a little bit older. Um, but it was at the time, it was the most advanced. They haven't replaced it, right? Smaller, There's no A6600. No, there yet. is a so I think about three or four months ago they came out with an A6400, which, which is, is like not a designed to be slightly a replace, it's lower, a, but it's newer tech. No, it's about the it's I think it's the same body, same sensor. One of the only things that changed was they improved the 4K recording performance so yeah, that that, that was the one thing is that yeah. it tended to overheat over time. But they made so that the screen flipped out all the way. Mm. Whereas right, whereas the 6500 only flips out about halfway. Yeah, I don't care about It flaps that. all the way. So now you can uh, vlog. That's the other thing I don't... Yeah, I don't vlog. The other thing I don't like about it is that I, do, I wish that it had an actual optical viewfinder. I don't like the digital crap that they do on these things. I know it's not possible based on the technology, but... I like that the Nikon is instant and it's it's a real optical uh, viewfinder. The digital one is just kind of like you're looking in a. It's almost like you're looking in a weird screen. This is what you're doing, and it's, it's like right in front of your doing. face. I mean, that's I mean, I'm what, sure I'll get used to it. I'm that's just, the whole idea behind the mirrorless. Yeah, I'm just used to the Nikon that has an optical one, but I don't know. I mean, I have both cameras. If technically, if this gets me into photography more, I can pull out the the D seven thousand again when I'm not traveling, and then use this as traveling. The other cool thing is uh, my girlfriend was wanting to get into photography again too. And she, I got her a bunch of classes on Udemy um, that were all photography classes. And she hasn't had time to watch any of them. And my camera is like too bulky. So I've just like, you just take the 6500 and learn how to do photography. Between the two of you and the two cameras, you'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, she can use whichever one she wants to, but it's just... She didn't. She thought that the the seven thousand was a little bit too intimidating and didn't really want to take it up. But the sixty five hundred is is pretty straightforward with the knobs and the controls and things. Yeah, and it wasn't that. It was more that the seven thousand like just has more more buttons and there's I don't know. It's just it's just more intimidating. It's just bigger, more intimidating. But I think that the sixty five hundred hopefully will will get her out there and just taking some photos. Yes. It is a is a perfect travel camera because it's so small, yeah, and so easy to carry around, but still really really good picture quality. I took a bunch of. Let me see if I can find them. Do they have rubber like a um, wrapper grips for it to protect it? Uh, they good? probably have extended grips. I actually found the grip on the A six five hundred to be very comfortable. Well, it's not ungrippy. I just mean like um like you want it to be taller or bigger. I, well, my Nikon had like a like a full body wrap that you could use. You probably could, like, uh, like a leather case? case, half case. I've seen stuff like that. I'm trying to look up some pictures I took with that camera. If you look for leather you. case, they're going to, like... And also, Amazon has not been working, like, all day. Oh, I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder if there's anything going on. Yeah, the other thing I've noticed, too, on a totally different side note... Like, I took I took this. Well, that's good. With that camera. It's edited, but... The 6500 or yep. the... No, nope, the 6500. No. Um... There's one really good one that I took. Let me see if I can look at The other thing I noticed is that my Wi-Fi doesn't work in Santa Monica. It's very annoying. Your Wi-Fi to what? Or my, sorry, my cellular. 
Oh yeah, I've I have noticed full that signal, too. But it, I don't have any. It has no data. I've noticed that too. Somehow, the closer I get to the water, the better signal it gets. But there's this weird dead spot about right where by your we house? are, right by my house. It's like the iPhone does this thing where when it has no internet, you search in Google, you search in, and then it just like removes your search parameters. Oh, that's amazing. Fun. Yeah, so I can't really uh, take phone calls from my house. Okay, well, maybe as long as it's not just, it's it's not not just, just me. It's not just you. Like, I have to, when I uh, am waiting for my code to log into my two-factor, um, sometimes I have to move around my house mm. to get it. Yeah, that's not that bad. But it's only like a bottom case. Yeah. Just think, gives it like a nice... I think there's an official Sony one. You want to so go this that is the Sony one. The Sony that leather Sony body one? case for 6500 camera. Yeah. There's a couple. There's a couple. This is the problem with photography is because it, you know, it's makes an, you want to buy it everything. Is, uh, is a deep dive. It's I a know deep this. rabbit hole. I knew this from before. Because uh, it's all you ever want to do when you do it is you, you start wanting to buy things. Yes. Don't we know? So, you know how you mentioned the iPad Pro? You already bought one. No. Oh. What I was going to say is that I could, you know, what other device I could also do all those things on is a Chromebook. No, just for get a third of the no, price. Because you, can you run Lightroom on a Chromebook? Yes, because it's an Android app. How many times, Greg? How many times? Dude, just buy the iPad. You need it. What are you talking about? You need it. You need it. What are you talking about? I do agree with you that it is a machine. It's the that perfect would device do for you. A lot of things that I needed to do, but. No, I can't justify the cost. This laptop does. I have I have multiple machines for multiple things. And as of right now, this setup works just fine for me. Now, it is coming to a time where I am going to need to buy a laptop coming up here eventually at some point. Don't do it. <laughs> but I don't know. There, There's a lot Wait, of are factors you getting, that are, are you going to get the new... With uh... the 16-inch? No. Pro? No. I'm, I mean, I'm interested to see... Don't, I don't want to talk about that because I had, you know, I had to get another one. I took, I took this one. That's good too. Are you going to get the new Dell XPS? See, this is the one I'm talking about. There, there are things I have to think about in this, in this, in this decision, right? Like, if I'm, if you're buying a laptop, if it is the year of our Lord 2019, it's the second half of 2019, it's typically not a great time to buy laptops. Yeah, I mean, talk to the guy who had to buy one. I know. This is what I'm saying. This is not a great time of year to be looking at laptops. They literally Middle talked about it on. Year. They talked about it on an ATP today that right now is literally it's the worst the time. worst time to buy a Mac laptop. Unless you have to. And I was like... Well, you kind of had to. Had to. So th this is my thing is that it really depends, right? Because are you using it for work? That's a question, right? Mm -hmm. Question number two. If you are using it for work, what kind of work are you doing? And that, that, that question basically boils down to are you building native iOS apps on your machine or not? Right? If you know that you're not, well, then you don't necessarily have to feel like you have to buy a MacBook. Well, the other thing that's interesting is I thought about all this and I was like, well, I had been using my Linux desktop. We talked about this a lot, but I've been using my Linux desktop for the past month and a half and I was living with it. It was working. It was fine. And then I got the MacBook and I started using it for a week and I was like, oh, back, I'm back. But there's, it's not actually Mac OS. It's just like the combination of the key bindings. We talked about that. I know it's stupid, but I have muscle memory. Combination of the key bindings, combination of the kinds of software that I can use. Um, I still loathe the window manager. It does not work. Please rewrite it. It's horrible. Stop stealing my pixels. If I say I want something full screen, 
make it full screen. Don't leave 15 pixels on the left-hand side because you don't know how to full screen an app. Well, that's whatever. Every but, single day. No, I mean like when you're... Okay, this is the thing that really annoys me about this thing. I use spaces, which is weird. Yes, you, yes. Are, you are a weirdo for Great. that. They made spaces. It's a feature of the OS, right? I use them. If I alt-tab from a Sublime Text window that is in space two to a Chrome window that's in space one, and I all tab back to Sublime Text, where do you think it should go? Where it was before. Where do you think it goes? Not where it was before. Any other Sublime Text window but the one you were on. Does it randomly pick no, one of the it other does windows? The, so like what I do now, because I have an ultra wide at work, which is interesting, and I have some things to say about it. It's actually pretty damn cool. It's not a, like a super tall, high-res ultra-wide, but you can definitely get two decently sized 1440 Chrome windows that are a oh. little bit thinner on each side of it with no gap in between. That's kind of nice. So now the spaces actually make more sense because each... I used to switch spaces on two 27-inch monitors to simulate the same thing. So I was always switching between spaces across two different kinds of monitors. But now with the ultra-wide... It treats it as one space. It's one space, but there's two side-by-side -side windows on it. So it's almost like you have half as many spaces. It's a double wide. Yes, but you have the same <laughs> amount of logical space. It is a double wide trailer of not, monitor space. Not the same amount of pixels, but you have you have as the much logic of it. The logic content. about it, where it puts the content. Yeah. Yes, that's true. You and if you in um my new boss was telling me that he just closes his lid and uses the ultra wide only because he hates the window. He said, I was lamenting about the window manager and he said the same thing. He was like, I just close the lid and use only the ultra wide. And I was like, that almost makes sense. It actually does make perfect sense. But I like having the terminal always open on the Mac screen. So that's my problem. Yes, so then, that's true. And then I put things that I don't really ever look at like calendars and Slack. email and Slack on the monitor that's behind the terminal. And I got to leave the terminal to like look at those things. So yes, unless something's urgent, I don't really do that. I have this problem as well because I run uh, to, oh, I haven't told you about this. So I got new monitors at work. No, you tell me about that. I did. Maybe off air, but yeah, you did. The two twenty. So I've got two 27 inch 4K monitors mm -hmm. made by Dell. They're actually pretty nice monitors. I mean, Dell makes nice monitors. Um, there have been instances where I, I've come back um, not even from suspending the laptop, but from literally just locking and then unlocking the laptop and I'll forget where my windows were. Yeah. How does that make any sense? How is that even possible? Why uh -huh. are you moving my windows when the screen is locked? I just think it loses track of the... Of it's got to lose monitors. track of the signal, right? Because I've got one monitor Either plugged into a dongle or, and then the yeah. other one plugged into another dongle. So I've got two things going in. You but never like, how, do you, how does it forget? You no. never unplug the dongle? I literally just lock go to the bathroom, come back, unlock, and all of my things are on one screen. It's not even that they like move around necessarily. It's just it forgets that it has this whole other screen. Hmm. I don't understand how that happens. Mine doesn't do that, but it, definitely when you unplug the plugs and plug them back in, it's sometimes the problem is it remembers the monitors, I think, based on a combination of the monitor serial number. Or more model number. The order that you plug the them port. in also matters too. But both. It both, remembers yes. it by both. Where it's like you a two-way handshake. Yeah. So if you switch the monitor, even if the serial number of the monitor, whatever the heck it's using, is on is still plug it into port, it, it thinks it's the opposite monitor. It think it's or it, it spatially thinks it's in a different place. It just resets them. 
it's weird. Very annoying. Well, to be fair, it's trying to figure it out at every step of the process, right? Have if you, you unplug them, it's trying to figure out where to put everything. And then when you plug them back in, it's also, again, trying to plug, figure out where to put everything. But it doesn't... My biggest problem is that it doesn't make the correct assumptions about where things were when you go back to a known config. But you see, the thing, the thing that really annoys me about it is this. This is where you know there's a bug, right? It remembers when you plug, when you switch the ports, when you flop them, it remembers that the monitor that was on the right is the right monitor. It doesn't like remove them. Yeah, so it's But it moves the freaking windows. It moves the windows. Why? There's a bug. Why? There's a bug in there. I can move the mouse around. There's a cockroach in there, man. Exactly where it should be. Yeah. And then it's on the wrong window. And you're like, well, you literally made a decision. You know that that's the same monitor. You know it's on the right. You re- it's you, not like it reversed them to where it's moving wrong. It's, you know where it is in relation to the other monitors. Yeah, but then you put the windows on the wrong place. So there's a bug in there. I don't know what the hell they're doing. Fix it. It's the most annoying thing about the MacBook. It's you, even worse than the keyboard. Is do the you monitor management. think that... I would actually... I might agree with you on that one. Because the a keyboard lot of people, you just don't use. You just plug in your mechanical and you're like, I don't care. That is the most privileged thing you've ever said on this podcast. What? That oh. I'm a mechanical? <laughs> you, you, you type on your keyboard? <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I meant like you don't care if the keyboard is... Like if I had to type on that keyboard... I wouldn't have bought it. Nine hours a day. No. No way. I wouldn't have done it, but I don't. I type on my mechanical keyboard and then I don't worry about the keys that are on it. And if I go to a meeting, I'm like, oh, this keyboard sucks for like five minutes. Then I go back to using a keyboard. That has been become more of a problem for me because I have been switching back and forth. Like I, I tend to, um, so my team has a standing work from work remotely on Fridays mm-hmm. thing. And so I've been literally every single week at some point, I'm switching back from my nice cushy desk setup to on the go on the laptop setup. And there, there are three things I have to switch every single time I switch from one to the other. Mm-hmm. I have to turn Carabiner either on or off, which handles all of my key mappings for the keyboard that I have at work or not the keyboard, the built-in keyboard. I have to switch exactly one keyboard shortcut in the default keyboard settings app because it's a system-level shortcut that it only works if you set it at that level. For the keyboard? Are you talking about like the command and option stuff? Yeah. Because that remembers it by keyboard. No, it doesn't. The system does not. There's one that needs to be set at the system level. So the key itself, the, my problem is, is that the, the mechanical keyboard I use at work, the escape key is where the tilde key is on the normal layout. And so you can't mm-hmm. just switch that key at the system level and you can't switch that keyboard shortcut in Carabiner. So you have to switch it back and forth at the system level because the things I switch it for is that um, when I have my keyboard plugged in, my mechanical keyboard plugged in, I do command escape to flip through the windows. Do you ever use better touch tool? That's what Carabiner is now. It's, it, it changes oh, things. it's the same brand? Yeah, it's the same thing. Mm. I'll, we'll have, I'll, it's, uh, it was actually going to be my pick, but I'm glad we're talking about it now. Carabiner with a K. Um, it has two apps. It has the app that actually maps the keys to another key, which it does handle. Per, it actually is a really good piece of software. It handles per key, but that's kind of like the... It's almost like a client side app, right? You're, you're setting it specifically for the key. You're not setting it at the system level. Mm-hmm. When I have my keyboard plugged into this machine, I have, do command escape to flip through the apps in the group. So if I have three VS Code windows open, it flips through those three apps. If I have three Chrome windows open, it flips through those three Chrome windows, right? If I'm off the keyboard, if my mechanical keyboard is unplugged, I have to change that keyboard shortcut from command escape to command tilde. Doesn't... Or command back to... Doesn't that app reckon... Can't you set stuff based on the keyboard that's plugged in? Set that, like, disable that shortcut? You can't. You can, you can only map key to key. 
But you can't say like disable this the actual, map on the you keyboard. You can't change the actual shortcut. Itself. Do you email these people? Do you say I was told by AppleCare that this should work? It's a it's a oh it's a macOS level keyboard. No, no, shortcut. but you can't with better touch tool you can remap any key any key yeah, I can't talk. Any key sequence to do anything, can you? No, but the uh the keyboard system will override that one. If it's one that is defined in the system, it has precedent. It's, it's like the you bang remove the keybind. I From did, the I had system? To, yeah, you, you say remove shortcut. I don't want to do that. And then you just tell better touch tool to... I spent some time on this. This is the only way you do it, and it's annoying. That's all I'm saying. Oh, all right, well, that's weird. So, like, you for have weird like, problems. For you like should get a real two, keyboard. I have a fantastic keyboard. You know what keyboard. I'm thinking about doing? I enjoy my keyboard quite a bit. I'm thinking about selling my Vortex and oh. getting another Ducky one, too. Are you in... Oh. I love the Ducky at home. I'm kind it's of actually amazing. glad that you The Ducky is the most this. amazing keyboard I've ever had. Well, you haven't had the mini keyboard, so... I did, the Ducky is a regular, no bullshit layout of an 87 yeah, key. Kinda, it's kind of big. But, but it doesn't have, none of the other keys are in the wrong place. It's That's the true. perfect keyboard. That's true. It's a great keyboard. I mean, the, I, I used to think that there wasn't that much of an ergonomic difference between even something like a 10 keyless and that those 60% layouts that we talked about last week. Six, oh man. But there is because yeah. I in my home office machine I switch back and forth between a light a ten keyless layout which is a standard layout and the sixty percent layout and even just like that two or three inches on the right hand side of having your hands in and like where your muscle memory is it actually makes a big difference mm-hmm. and it's much more comfortable to have everything nice and close nice and compact because you're not you're not tweaking your arm out here to to move stuff around. You're big on so, the air goes, but I just think that the the 10 keyless is like the perfect layout. There are layouts now that are, are similar to 10 keyless, but they do no, things no. like cut off the... 10 keyless. Like the, they nah. cut off the function keys nope. or like... 10 keyless. Function keys and all. I mean, this is such a rabbit hole because there's so many different... There's probably five or six different options that are actually close enough to the 10 keyless layout wise that, they, that you probably would do well to investigate them. No, no, no. I'm getting another ducky one too. Maybe not in white for work, but I'm getting one of those. Do they even come in silent switches? They, I will figure that out, but I'm getting some 10 keyless. But you, so you and had, I don't think I'm going to do silent reds again. I think I'm going to do some other kind of silence. So the one that I'm using at work has getter on silent black. But I have, but the, the duckies only come in the cherries. Well, they're, they're, it's literally the same pattern. So, um, no, but the, you can't buy a ducky without cherries. Right. So uh, I would use the other key. The keys, cherry silent black them. is literally the same switch as a getter on silent black. It's no, just I know. made by two different companies. But the duckies don't come with the silent blacks. They don't come with silent blacks at all? I don't know. But they don't come with gator on. They only come with the keys that I'm talking about. I feel like they would come. I feel like there's got to be an option for. If they come with silent reds, they're probably going to be an option for silent blacks. It's worth looking up. Well, I have no internet at your house, so I can't really do that. Aren't you hooked up to my Wi Fi? I thought I gave you the Wi Fi. I had to reset my Wi-Fi settings because I thought that it would solve this problem. Do you know how to use an iPhone? Nope. He's going to break my iPhone. So anyways, uh, that's all I got. I mean, that was a lot of follow-up. It's almost a whole episode. Even, let's, let's check. Let's see where we're at. Uh, that's not too bad. All right. Well, that's all I got. That's, uh, yeah, I can go into a more of a rabbit hole, but uh, well, that's what where I'm at in life. We could talk a little bit about this thing. So you sent me an article today that you wanted me to read. Which, mm-hmm. I sent you, and we, we were joking about it before we started recording. I sent you an article. I did not read it. I read the title. And then I sent it to you, and I said, should we talk about this? And then you were like, 
I thought you read this whole thing and I was like, nope, didn't. I, I could have sworn that that's why you sent it to me. No, I, I sent it to you because the title looked interesting. Actually, no. I no, guess we I, talked about I I actually did click. I, I saw the first the first question. I read the H the big H one, and then I was like, that sounds like something you can talk about. And that was what I did. Greg, you sent me an, uh, a link <laughs> for an article called 101 Tips for Being a Great Programmer. Parentheses yeah. and human, which I thought was very interesting. That's what I thought too, yeah. Yeah, this is. I think this is a good list. I want to go down this and kind of take a look at a couple of these. And maybe we can learn something. Maybe we can refute them. Maybe we can give them some hot takes. Start a flame war on the internet. Who hot knows? takes, pow. Who knows? Who knows? Number one. Fuck. Number one, get good at Googling. Number one, get good at talking. How do you how do you feel about get good at Googling? I actually agree with this. I think this is this actually is rule number one. Yeah. See, the thing about this one is, is that like there's been a lot of things that I've seen online lately about like there was like one funny meme that I saw in our programming humor where it was like it was it was kind of poorly explained, but it was a person coming out of school in programming saying, I don't it was like somebody who was like, I don't need to hire a developer for X amount of money. Because I just need someone who knows how to Google. And then and then uh the person was the person who responded in the comic was like, No, you don't knowing you get paid a hundred and whatever thousand dollars a year that it was to know how to Google the right thing. And I think yes. that's totally true because you can just Google like you can just Google like I'm having a problem with like the most basic use case. All right. So say you're having a problem with React and you're like React doesn't work. React doesn't compile. Let's be more specific than doesn't work. React doesn't compile, right? You will end up with so many articles that do not help you, blog articles that tell you how to make React compile, do all these things, but you have to like learn how to Google, learn how to use Google effectively to specifically search for a weird combination of the error message, the tools you're using, and all these things. And you have to like essentially trick Google into figuring out exactly what you're trying to say with search jujitsu. And then you have to use the, sometimes if you're using something new or like an old library, just say jQuery, even though I haven't used jQuery in like two years, but say you're using jQuery and you search for something and you're like, all right, the selector, the pseudo selector is not working or whatever. You'll find articles that are five, six years old and out of date. So you even have to use like the, you know, search within the past week, 24 hours, one month, depending on how old the thing you're looking at is. And there's just like that. I can't really explain it, but like, because I don't do like the weird Boolean searches where you like quote things and do pluses. I don't know how to do all that. That's too advanced for me because it gets very specific very quickly and you end up with like no results. But there's just something about like the weird garbage that you type into Google that actually works and finds the right answer. Yes. And a great example of this is literally last week's show when we were trying to figure out what your pick was, even though you didn't know the name of it. And guess who figured it out? Google did. Yep. And it's called Google Foo for a reason. Mm-hmm. Is that you have to know what the levers are to pull in your Google search in order to be able to to figure out and get to what it is that you are looking for. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you mentioned all the weird little extra things that you can put in because Google search is not just about putting in some words and hitting search. There are other things that you can do to make your searches better. For example, the one that I use quite a bit is when you want to search a specific site or domain, you do site colon. Yep the domain, and then your search terms. Yep. That one is a lifesaver. I do that all the time with GitHub. Because I one do of that all the time with GitHub. I do it all the time with Reddit. You want to know my one of my all-time hot takes on how to solve problems when you're coding? What's that? Go to GitHub. Search for the exact library that you're doing something with 
and just search all the code on GitHub. Of the name of the library? No, like whatever, like literally you can put in a line of code. Like if you know you're dealing with some library that uh, like sets up its object constructor a very specific way, you can just search for the constructor and you will find libraries oh, somebody wrote it. Yeah, somebody that started used it, it yep. in their code and you'll see many, many instances of how people integrated it and how they set it up. I don't really usually do that to like either literally copy what they're doing, but it's just, it'll get you on the right track of someone who's using the library in the same way as you in the same, and you can also filter it by language. You just say like this thing in Scala and you'll find Scala examples of whatever you're looking at or this thing in Node or whatever. And the thing I would say though is some people think that, some people joke that like all developers ever do, some developers joke about all, because not other people that aren't developers don't know this, but some developers say, you know, all you need to know how to do is Google and copy paste something into your code. That is not freaking true. I don't copy anyone's code into my code. And if I ever do, I link to the Stack Overflow article and I say, I did this because of this reason. I literally put a comment there. And I say, I did this because I needed to do this quickly and this was the example of how to do it. But I don't really ever take other people's code. I just use it as inspiration or to try to troubleshoot something that isn't working. Sometimes you just need an example. You just need a working example in order to understand how things are. Because a lot of times it's just syntax. Like, yeah. hey, you need to wrap this in parentheses instead of curlies. Like, that's literally it. Yeah. And no amount of copying and pasting is going to fix that issue in your code. Mm-hmm. But the just being able to see a working example with correct syntax and the correct usage of whatever piece of technology that you're trying to use will teach you how to incorporate that into your own code. So it is not exactly, it's almost never straight up copy and pasting because the implementation of the library is always going to be different for every single project, no matter what. So I would disagree with the copy and pasting part of that joke, but the Googling part is partially true, but not in the way that people think it is as a joke. It's like, oh, all you have to do is Google it and the results will give you the answer. Well, no, it's not. It's just an example. Yeah. It's just because yeah. you yeah. see somebody at the NBA All-Star game, you know, jump over a mascot and dunk the ball with two hands, doesn't mean you're going to be able to go out there and just copy paste that into your own game no. and do that down at the Y. No, but being able to see that somebody can do that and is a thing that exists gives you ways of thinking about how to do it because I can't dunk. But the, 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 the analogy holds. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need an example and that pushes you in the right direction. So there's two things I would add to that. And I know we're talking a lot about this one topic, but... There's two things that I would add to that is that, um, (laughs) hilarious. We can talk about that next. Um, one thing is that the only time I ever do copy paste things into my code is if it's a utility function. Cause there's a lot of like, you know, like something that's so like calculating, um, what was one that I used recently? Like math.random. Well, yeah, like coin flips I do often because I don't ever remember like the stupid way that you have to tell. Like, you know that in Python, if you want a random number between one and three, it's literally just math. It's like math random. random. No, it's like random paren one comma three. Done. Yes, beautiful. Amazing. What the heck is this math.min divided by one divided by math.max divided by... What is that? The JavaScript library made the mistake of not making it integer random. They made it... uh Float random. Mm. That's the that that's something every day. That is the root of the problem. So you always have to multiply it out and round it up and down in order to integerify your float. Yeah, and Python is amazing because it has. I think it, Python is smart. Well, they built it with knowing that the other scripting languages had problems, so they built yeah. In, so they're uh, like random. They're like, oh, you give me integers, I'm going to give you integers. Oh, you give me floats, I'm going to give you floats. Mm-hmm. It figure it, it has a uh, yeah contextual. Mm-hmm. 
typing. It's pretty good. Yeah, what I was thinking stuff. of the the other thing that I did copy relatively recently was like something to calculate the to the total distance between two lat longs. I think it's like a function that I'm never going to write myself. Like there's a standard function that does that, and I just copied that one time. Things like that. And then the other thing I would add is I've gotten so good at Googling sometimes that I get to the point where I know on the internet there isn't an answer for the problem I'm having. And I hate that feeling. Because like, you know, when you're dealing with like problems that are when you're early on in programming, it's like you can almost always Google every problem that like you're going to have as a junior. But then when you start getting into like more complicated stuff, you're like, I literally am at the end of the internet and there is no answer to what I'm looking for. Yeah, and you how, know that because you know how to search. How do I how do I write my webpack config to do this weird thing that nobody else will ever yeah, do? And you're ever. like, and you're like, oh well, nobody's ever done it. Yeah, and you know what the answer to that is? You write your own plugin for webpack, and then you go look at the documentation for writing plugins for webpack, and you're like, ah, it doesn't make any sense. If you're the last human on earth, you're gonna figure out how to make fire pretty quickly. So Yeah. Maybe that maybe that's it. I want to <sighs> keep going down this list. Okay. 54. Value your work. Mm. regardless of how much experience you have or what your job title is, your work has value. Give it the value it deserves. There are a couple different ways to read this comment. There's a, this is a sliding scale because you should obviously value what you do. And I'll say the, the couple ways that I think about it and then you can add in the tiers of reasons that you have. But like you should always approach whatever you're doing as a developer that like, like you actually care what you're writing. But at the same time, you can go too far. To the point where you believe that what you're writing is like the most important code that you've ever written, and you can be precious of it. You can you can go all the guy from Lord of the Rings. You can go all uh, my precious. Yeah, that Gollum. Guy. You can go all. Oh, yeah. yeah, you're not even a nerd, man. Too much. You can go all Gollum on it and be like, "This is the most amazing thing I've ever done, and no one else can touch it, and I'm the only person that can write the code." So there's two sides of the coin. One is that you don't care enough to actually do good work. And I would say, why are you even doing this? Because coding is fun. And assuming you're building something fun, you should value what you're building. And it should be, you should believe that what you're writing is good and you know is the best that you can do at the time. And obviously it can be improved and all these things, but you should at least value what you're doing. And on the other side of the coin, you can care too much to where everything is so precious that you don't want to let anybody else touch it. And then you get tunnel vision. Sometimes it doesn't come out as well as it could either. The best way to approach this is that if you're working on a team where everybody values what they're doing, then all of you collectively value everything. And then you balance the load of work of valuing. So like not one person becomes so precious of something. Everybody values and understands what you're building because you all collectively built it together and you made the decisions together on what you're going to build. So everybody's on the same page. Everybody had input and everybody worked on it to where not necessarily anybody who works there can pick up any part of the code and be like, I know exactly how that was built. But you would look at it and you'd be like, I understand where the decision came from that made us build it this way. And that's when you have a good team because everybody values everything and everybody believes they have ownership of everything. I think that's a good point. I think that the best way to counteract caring too much about code and being too precious of it is to work in not necessarily a team environment, but getting an outside opinion or getting a secondary opinion. That could be your QA person. That could be your manager. That could be a non-technical stakeholder. 
someone else other than you who has another set of eyes to put on whatever feature or thing that you are building to help you from getting too far down the rabbit hole chasing the ring. I think you make very good points, Greg. It's uh, as with a lot of the things on this list, it's kind of a balance because you can go too far in either direction, either caring too much or not caring enough. And both those are bad. Both those, you will end up in a bad place and will result in bad times for everyone involved. So Gonna have a bad time? Gonna have a bad time. As with many things in life, balance is key. Stand up for yourself. Stand up for things that you believe in, but don't do it to the point where it's detrimental to your work or to other people around you. Mm -hmm. That's that's a good one. I think that's one that maybe developers don't think about enough. Mm-hmm. Related one, be supportive. Yeah. That's another kind of, some of these are kind of team centric where you've got a group of people and all got to figure out a way to work together. I mean, it really, it really is important that, uh, that you are supportive of your team. Like there's, there's another, it kind of goes into the same thing I just said. Like it can go either way. One way someone can feel like, they have the burden of building everything. And then maybe people that work with them don't care enough to build, to help them out. And then that inversely creates a situation where the one person is the one who's killing themselves building something, you know? Um, it could also go the other way. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. You could, you could also go the other way where... Um, I guess there isn't really another way. <laughs> I was going to think of like what the inverse of that is, but there really isn't. It's like it either creates a situation where one person feels like they have to work really hard to do everything and then nobody supports them or there's a situation where no one is supportive of anybody and then nothing ever gets done. So yeah. either way, you have to be supportive. Yeah, you don't want to be in any unsupportive situation. That's just bad news for everyone. It doesn't make anyone feel good. If you don't feel good, you're not going to you know do good work. So be supportive. Help your friends. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Every single keyboard with Cherry Blacks, Silent Blacks is sold out. Yep, that's why I jumped on mine. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh, here's a good one. Choose technology for longevity and maintainability. Oh, man. Oh, man. So as two people who write a lot of JavaScript, this might be a foreign concept to us, especially these days. Um, what do you make of this? What do you think about this? Um, <laughs> I think that this one is a very tough one because you, you don't really know if something is going to be long-term, but you should know if it's maintainable. Like if you're dealing with like some obtuse library or piece of code or framework or whatever that doesn't make any sense, you're either doing it because you have to because you've been required to for some reason, depending on the integrations you have to have or the framework the client wants, if you're in a servicing business, whatever it is, you're going to pick technologies that um, you have to use. You're not going to pick them. You're going to use what you have to use. Like a good example of this would be, I don't know, something might hit close to home, but working on an application where you're required to use Angular 1 when there's modern things like React or Vue or even Angular, whatever the heck the new one is, Angular 25, whatever version they're on now, 
six. Sure, whatever weird number they went to. Um, you know, you're going to be forced to use something that's antiquated just for the sake of it being antiquated. Or you're going to pick some new hotness, just take React, for instance, and you're going to be like, we're going to use React. You really have no idea if Facebook no. is going to have React Mm-mm. in 10 years. No. I mean, the code base will be there. You don't even know if NPM is going to exist and be open source and be a legit thing that you can use. No. I think that uh, the JavaScript ecosystem might be kind of an outlier for this just because, especially in the last few years or so, it's, everything's moved so quickly. But even if you think about it, though, a code base written in, say, jQuery, which it, by today's standard would seem a little bit more outdated, What, what is the standard of that being quote-unquote maintainable or not, right? I'm, I'm wondering how does one determine whether or not a technology is maintainable? I think there's a couple things. You One is that you know that you can hire a developer who understands the technology as one key component. And then the other key component would be that you built it in a way, and this comes down to a lot of preference and is debatable, but you built it in a way where... You can expand upon it. It's modular enough that you can replace pieces of it as they become unnecessary, deprecated. There's something better comes along, whatever, insert whatever reason. Things are sufficiently abstracted enough to where they're pluggable. You can remove pieces. And that you're, I mean, and then, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much, those are the only two I can think of actually right now, but Basically, you're picking something that you know you can maintain, that you know you can find people that are work on, that can work on it. But that's always debatable. Like you, you can, you could have found hundreds of jQuery developers coming at your door, knocking on your door five years ago, and a lot of those people don't know or do jQuery anymore. I mean, you know, it's funny how that industry works because when I first started doing web development, no one said that you should ever write vanilla JavaScript. They were like, you should just use jQuery because it's not going to work in IE. It's not going to work in Firefox. It's not going to work here. You got to write. You can't write. What are you talking about? You can't write vanilla JavaScript. They're crazy. Crazy. It's unmaintainable. Unmaintainable. You're going to create this mess and it's insane. You should not. Why would you do that? XML HTTP request. Get out of here. Get, get it out of here. Dollar sign dot get, man. Get elements by ID. What is that? Yeah, dude. Dollar sign hash. Come on, man. <laughs> so much easier. What are you doing? And like that may have been true back then, but it's kind of funny, but I mean, you couldn't have predicted this, but if you had written your large scale application in modular, even if it was a design pattern, because they didn't have classes back then, even if it was like, a, like, a, like an unrevealing module pattern or some crap like that, and you wrote it in vanilla JavaScript, it might actually still be fairly modern it right now. It might still be okay. That I would argue that that would be if you had a project like that and then you had a project that was written 100% jQuery without any sort of modularity or compartmentalization and it, that jQuery app was written, say, two years ago and the vanilla JavaScript was written 10 years ago. If you brought those two apps to me and said, convert these two to React, a well-structured, properly thought-out vanilla JavaScript app is going to be easier to port to React than some spaghetti jQuery code. Potentially, but I think jQuery kind of, uh, there's something about jQuery where it gave the illusion based on how well it worked that you could just write a DOM ready function 
and just throw all of it in and there. And just throw a bunch of selectors in there. everything in there. The entire It gave this sink. illusion that that would work, and it did. But you would, you would often have these situations where you have no idea what stack depth you're in in terms of click events, what nope. function callbacks being nope. called. Nope. You know, what you had the whole, like when, when jQuery deferred came out and you could start doing promises and all that, like you would often see code where the callbacks were separate functions that were defined, like var cats equals function. And then that's where like, it would be like the on error on success. And you just end up with a situation where you're jumping around a code like up and down. And like you've, that's, that's why, if you never noticed this, but that's why editors have bookmarks. Like yes. IntelliJ has bookmarks. I, when I was writing jQuery code, would sometimes put bookmarks on the same file in Sublime. Yes. And you can use a, there's a keybind where you can switch between them. You can go back and forth. Yes. The code. Yes. That was invented because files were so long. But I mean, that's not like uh, necessarily. Like you didn't have the ability to import and export and create partials in, in code back then. Like you didn't have that ability. You could create separate scripts. Like you could create a main script and a secondary script and whatever. And you could put little bits and pieces in there. But, you know, they were often closures and, and whatever. And you couldn't cross between them. And it wasn't until Browserify came out that you could actually easily import partials. Except you could technically do it by concatenating raw files with gulp back in the day or you could do it with partials when i mean when browserify came out that was when i realized building a really big app at the time and i realized that you could make files and technically import them and create partials you could you could do like require in uh yes that's correct yeah and like that totally changed the way that i think about coding because even if like that immediately forces you not even getting into react with actual component classes and angular with directives or you know cut the cake however you want to but like you actually had the ability to create modular pieces of yes. code that lived on their own and were adaptable and pluggable to other things that was the beginning of the module pattern well module patterns were even a thing before in JavaScript, that well in javascript i guess no even in javascript module pattern was a thing i was doing revealing module patterns and crap like well, I guess the, the years ago, five, six years ago, importable, exportable. Well, that import, okay, that definition model, yeah, import, export, sure. But you could make little classes of essentially like jQuery. There were like jQuery components. I remember what they were called, but like components that you could like self. They were almost like an Angular directive. You could, or like a backbone view. You could, you could create jQuery components that would bind themselves to selectors and then run. Like you could do all that, but. You know, a lot of people didn't write code that way. Some of the good ones did. Like there were there were frameworks. Um, JavaScript MVC comes to mind. There were some older frameworks that allowed you to be modular with your and and deliberate with your the way you coded. But it wasn't always the common case. A lot of people just created single file jQuery. One gigantic app.js or main.js. Yeah. And everything was in it. But it was it. because you, you couldn't all of it. You couldn't import things. You, yeah. could, you could technically create yeah. a bunch of scripts, but then you're dealing with like HTTP one isn't very good at loading multiple scripts. It defers them all, loads them in order, does some weird stuff. Yep. HTTP two, like there's so many new things that are coming out, but like HTTP two, you can actually you can actually have multiple JavaScript files and there's no impact on performance. And you know, like there's all kinds of things that are happening now, but the technology just wasn't conducive for that. But either way, to get back to the point, like having maintainable and modular code really does make a difference. But I think 
the kids these days don't even know what the plight was like before they had these things because we, and I'm not going to say any particular framework because it really started with backbone and angular, but like and, and handlebars. knockout and handlebars and all those things. But like all of those things basically force you to be modular. Like they are inherent to, let's just take angular because it's something we don't really talk about very often. It is inherent in angular one that you have modularity. Yes. And dependency injection. It's like built into it. And I mean, some, some people don't remember what that was like before that even existed. Like all these, all these kids that are coming out of code school, like they can code in the context of this world we live in because all you technically got to teach somebody is React. And if they're smart enough and industrious enough to keep learning after they get out of code school, they're going to know how to code. But, you know, you tell those people to, you know, structure like a like an application from the ground up and they might not know how to do it because Create React App does it for them, creates a components folder, they drop components in there and they load them and they just work. Oh, man, if only you knew what it was like. Those are the days. I think that we're... There's an allegory. There's a kind of a, a similar thing to this in our lives where I think that you and I are some of the last people that are old enough to remember a time before the internet. I mean... Let me think about that. I mean, you, you yeah. don't remember a time in your life before the internet, before, my before mom smartphones? Was, no, not before. Well, yeah, obviously before smartphones. But my mom was really big on technology when I was younger. We had cable internet when I was in fourth grade. I had fast internet. internet I was playing one point. Like, I, well, I had like cable and then DSL. Like it was, I could download songs off Napster and like. But there wasn't Twitter back then. Right, like I, mean, I still don't use Twitter. There's a so difference. I, don't know. There's a difference. I never got into the world where there there's was a Twitter. difference between what the internet is like today and what the internet. I don't know is. what the internet is like today. I just read Reddit and look at funny stuff on the yes, internet. Yes, that is Destiny. what the internet is like. Reddit is what the internet Reddit is, is like. It's like today. a news group. It's like a news group done crack. That news groups were around a long time Among, ago. Well, think about the way people behave on Reddit and the way that memes take off on life themselves. The way that people embrace drama and. Um, seeing the hilariously inept ways that people interact and things like that. Hmm. That is kind of the internet. I don't pay enough attention to the internet. I see now, memes that... Well, I see that memes that's that, not how the internet was like back then. The Area 51 thing. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh my God. You I know somebody's going. I wouldn't have known about this if I didn't read Reddit, but apparently a bunch of kids who are really dumb <laughs> think they're just going to walk up to Area 51 and ask them if aliens are there? No, the quote is, "See, I want to see them aliens. That is the quote. <laughs> that, and then now there's an entire generation of memes that are going to come out of this. September 20th is the date. If you're anywhere near Roswell, New Mexico, please go and let us know how it is. No, please. We're not please advising. Go. Please do not go. Please do. Please do. No, they're going to get shot and then they're <laughs> going to blame this on the show. No, if you're listening to this and you think, if you're even thinking about going to Area 51, <laughs> I don't care. Stop listening. I don't want you as a listener. I mean, <laughs> like, according, do according to the government, it doesn't exist. So... Well, yeah, there's a lot of military bases that don't exist. Why why are we questioning these things? Like they have to have security through obvious they're not anonymousness. I want them to do the thing that they did with Jimmy Hoffa's uh grave and just open it up, be like, here you go, and have it just be nothing. Like have it a couple just be like, There's a helicopter. I and there are a couple thing, of uh assault rifles. That's all we got. I'm pretty sure that if the government had alien artifacts they wouldn't be there. So there's nothing there. It's just a base. Where would they be? Somewhere that is not actually visible from the satellites, like underground. I don't know. Who knows? Somewhere secret. 
An actual secret base. An actual secret Not base. Not a secret base that's literally on there. How... Do you know how hard it would be in the the interconnected world today to keep an actual secret base with actual alien artifacts completely secret? You just don't build it above ground. Do humans not work there though? Um, I mean, you just tell you just you just force Google. Hey Google, you want your Spectrum Wireless to run your network? Like, what? Your Google? She didn't say anything. She doesn't recognize you. Some usually she recognizes you, but well, yeah, I don't care. Get rid of that thing. The thing is, is that there's no like they'll just tell them don't show this on the satellites. There's always well, there's always OPSEC, right? There's always going to be there. There are people that work at this base, right? And as long as people work and know that this base exists, those people have lives outside the base, right? So yeah, like that's what that's what security clearances are for. Maybe they have a wife. Maybe they go to the bar and get them. drunk. They're not maybe allowed to. They do have that. a kid. Maybe you know, like they're not allowed to do that. Are they never going to go on the internet? Probably not. <laughs> Maybe they aren't allowed to. I mean, my my thing is that there's there's a it would be extremely difficult, I think, for word of something like that to not make it out. Um, I mean, there's tons not of saying things. that it wouldn't, but it seems like it would be very hard in today's. I world, mean, I'm so. not pulling conspiracy theory theory and saying it's there. I'm just saying that if they wanted to hide it, they could. Yeah, you're probably right. So probably, I don't know. I don't think there. I don't think that there's anything at Area 51, but. I know what there are there. There's a lot of military people with guns that are told that you can shoot people if they come across this line. So maybe don't go there. Maybe don't. Maybe, maybe don't. Maybe don't uh, do that. Do not put your life in danger for the sake of a meme. Oh, dude, we should totally read 72 because I have a funny joke about this. Re- Number 72 is read documentation. Yeah. So I want to make, because I've been doing a lot of reading of documentation that's questionable. Yes. Not really questionable. It's all there, but it's like hard to understand, right? So I was joking with this guy at work and I was like, we should make our documentation gore if it doesn't exist like software gore documentation gore wouldn't that just be uh uh an entire subreddit just full of empty threads no it would be an entire subreddit of photos of github documentation that sucks what do you mean no terrible readmes but documentation gore i guess it doesn't hit with you but that was the funny joke i, mean, I get it i get it i think there could be a better name don't read me's. Well, it's software gore, documentation gore. I don't know. It just documentation gore. I think it's good. It's not the good. best. We can put it through creative, but documentation is hard. <laughs> have the creatives think about it if you want, but Jesus, documentation is hard. I wonder if that exists, but yeah, like okay, yes, you can read documentation. But the thing that I would say about this to be serious though is that people learn differently, and I'm saying this because. I am actually not a person who learns from just reading the way that other people describe things. I don't really read documentation all that much. I reference documentation a lot. Yes. So I search for things within documentation for specific things that I want to know. But I like to learn from just building something with the technology or watching a video on it and having someone talk about it because I understand concepts more than I understand process. Yes, this is a very important distinction. Reading documentation and referring to documentation, two completely different things, Mm -hmm. right? Referring to documentation means that oh, I need to know what the name of this property is. Go look up said property. Or or here's a common one that could be in our documentation gore subreddit. If you write a library, I'm going to get a little angry about this. If you write a library and you have an API and kids, because I keep using this joke, kids, APIs do not mean only that you're accessing something from an API. When you write a library and you create 
function arguments to it, whether it's an object that you're destructuring or property like comma arguments, that is an API. So if you're writing a class that is constructed and then has a set of properties that are passed to the constructor to define the thing, and you don't freaking document what those freaking constructor properties are, and I don't have to look at goddamn source code to figure out what they are. It's very and hard. And also, not even necessarily like a prop types or a destructuring line or some kind of definition. I literally have to watch your constructor say if field exists, <laughs> if config dot whatever That's to know terrible. what your damn fields are. You are failing at life. Guys, code is not self-documenting. No it matter. It can be in a worst no, case scenario. It's not. Worst case scenario, I look at the source code of people's libraries because their documentation sucks. And you should never have to do that. There's obvious things that you should document. Functions, what the freaking arguments of the functions are, how you construct your objects, what the arguments to the constructor are, how you use the damn thing, and how it relates to other pieces. What are my methods? What are the damn methods? If the thing, like if you create, I don't know, a common library pattern where something has like a manager and you create a manager and then you ask the manager for an instance of something and you don't document what the freaking manager does, but you just say it's going to give you one of these things, like a servlet manager and it's going to give you a servlet and you don't document what the servlet manager does and how to customize it. Not good. Oh, it really grinds my gears. Not good. So, so anyways, read documentation but better than that, if you're writing a library, write documentation. Write documentation. <laughs> and if you don't write good documentation, I don't know what to say. I'm gonna look at your source code and be mad. Part of part of the difficulty in reading documentation is you're right that uh, writing documentation maybe is not as emphasized as it should be. Yeah. So you can also write too much documentation. There's that too. Well. Yes and no. There's reference. So the, the, that's why if you, there's one thing. If it's, if it's a reference, right? Yeah. Like you can't have a dictionary that's too long. Yeah, no, it's true. Right? So think of your documentation as a dictionary. Define what the terms well, in your code mean. You can have a reference dictionary about your library of just methods, properties, whatever, which usually comes from like Java docs or, or JS docs or whatever, like some automated document generator. You can have that. Java has that. You know, it'll just generate documentation for your code if you give it Java docs, right? You have that kind of documentation, which is really referenced. Like, these are the methods. These are the descriptions of the methods. These are the properties. This is what you expect the method to do. This is what it returns. There's that kind of documentation. And then there's process documentation. So there's like, this is how you use this thing. This is how you accomplish these common tasks. These are your dependencies. Yeah, but these a lot of the, the times... These are things you should not be doing with this. Well, a lot of the times people... And this is where like the dealing with open source and contributing back and asking questions and creating GitHub issues and getting clarity really comes in. But one thing you have to understand from the perspective of the people that are making your crap that they're documenting, they don't always know your use case and they didn't think of your use case. You, by definition, using someone else's library, all the people that are using someone's library are going to think of more use cases for how that thing could work then that person is going to be able to assume of their software when they build it. Just by the sheer nature of if there's 10 people using your library and there's one person developing it, the 10 people are going to think of more ways to use the thing than the person who wrote it. So the lesson there, which is probably another one of these other 101 things, goes back to the open sorcery episode. Ooh, nice sound. <laughs> Go back to the open sorcery episode and 
think about the fact that you're part of a community and you're working on something that other people are developing that a lot of the times they're not paid to develop. They're developing it because they actually have an interest in the thing. And it's a conversation. But if you're also, the other side of the coin is if you're developing something and you don't document it well enough, like literally well enough to even know what the inputs and outputs of the methods are and how you construct and build and use the thing, then you're not doing a correct service to the world. So it goes both ways. So I would say, yes, read documentation, but even more than that, write good documentation. The more documentation you write, the more people will read it. Yeah, well, the other thing is people can write amazing documentation that has so many sections and so much reading that it feels like a novel. And people like me will come around and be like, you know what? I probably could just learn more by just trying this out. How complicated could it be? And then you end up in the situation where your documentation, yes, it's all there, but it's so confusing or not written well enough or too long where people ignore it and then they only reference it. And that's pretty much 90% of the time that I live my life. I reference people's documentation after I've already tried to make it work. The only reason that your documentation should be that long and winding and novel-like is if you have a complete reference of things, right? You should not be right. Your documentation should not be so long that you have paragraphs of stuff, just walls of text. Well, it depends what you're building. It depends on what you're building, but it's okay to have long involved documentation as long as the references are covering everything that needs to be referenced, right? The one piece of documentation that I talk about all the time, call it the Bible, is the Flexbox article from CSS Tricks. That's not documentation. That's someone's article. It might as well be documentation. Well, it's not on the MDN. It's better than the actual Flexbox documentation. MDN slash Flexbox should just be a link to that. It should be. It absolutely should be. But that's they, the thing they should that pay. They should pay Chris Quire all of the... They should pay him like he's one of their All writers. the Mozilla coins. All the Mozilla coins. But the thing is, is that the people that really digest and the thing about it is that if someone really digests and understands something like Flexbox and they turn around and write like a seminal article with examples about it, it's because that person has like, you remember that, you know, those memes where it's always like the brain and the brain a little bit bigger galaxy and the brain, brain even bigger than galaxy brain. The people who like Chris Hoyer, have you just said, they write those things because they have galaxy brain about Flexbox and they understand how to how to not only understand what Flexbox is, but how to explain it so that common people can understand it, the non-galaxy brains. Part of the problem with the people who wrote the original Flexbox documentation is they didn't they may have had a galaxy brain about what they were building, but they didn't have a galaxy brain about how to explain it. Yes, that's true. So some people are just better teachers and some people are better at thinking of ideas. The biggest, greatest part of the CSS Tricks Flexbox article is ha- it is it. It is illustrated. It has pictures. You know what's with funny is arrows that show where things line up when you do align center yeah. or justify content or whatnot. Because those are things that you cannot explain in just words. You have to show people. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what you were talking about with uh, videos versus words. Yeah, and that's why I think I learned better that way. But sometimes the videos aren't that good either. I don't know. I, I learned from a combination of writing code, reading documentation, reading source code from other people, asking questions on Google, trying to find the weird use groups or github issues where people have a specific problem i did that's how i learn but the going back to like the images thing there's there's a better way to explain things for the correct kind of medium that you're working in and one of the things that i got a while ago that i think i used as a pick once was the css visual dictionary because i read this guy's article who wrote the book 
And he showed how Flexbox items expand and contract with GIFs. And he showed how CSS Grid expands and contracts with grids and does all these, or with GIFs and does all these things. And like how common CSS properties are represented as they contract and expand and, and whatever. And I, I thought that, that was just such, a, just such a smart way to learn CSS that I bought his book. I haven't had time to read it, but I did it. I think that's a great example. Oh I think, man, number 85? Yes, number 85. Well, a couple of these I think are related and I think we should talk about them together. Number 85 and number 86. Yeah. So, number 85 is don't start for scale. What do you think I'm going to say about this without me saying anything? What's the theme in everything I ever say? It depends. Yeah. <laughs> because there are situations where you can build something with the goal of just getting it done, which some would argue and are rightly correct that that is the way that you can get a product out, that you can build something. Short-lived products. No, no, even long ones. If you need to be oh. first to market, maybe you build it without scale in mind. Maybe because the goal the is features, to yeah. the goal is to get product market fit, first to market, well enough that we can do that. That's the goals. Well, okay, you might not build it for scale, but if your product is actually good, and you do find product market fit, and then the thing blows up, and you can't scale it, you will lose those customers. Yes, I agree with you. I think that the perfect tech story for this one is Twitter and the Twitter farewell. Twitter farewell, I think people think of that as kind of a joke of like, oh, ha ha, look, Twitter can't even scale right. But I see it the other way. I, I see the failure as a badge of honor because they didn't start off with, oh, we've got we've to make sure a billion people can you know, retweet the president of the United States whenever they want. And it's like, no, they, they built a service that does the thing that they said. It's like, you can send a message that's 140 characters. Mm-hmm. That's all they did. And they got to the point where their infrastructure for that original idea could not keep up with the amount of people that were on it. That's a good problem to have. Well, they ran into a crazy issue that, I mean, their indexes on their tweets were not even... Like, what what did they do at Original? I think it was they had uh, signed in, I think. Because JavaScript has signed in. So there was only 4 billion tweets that could be tweeted when they yeah, first there, started. Yeah, there's a limit to how many people who could be sending... There's a limit to the total number of tweets, essentially. Total number of tweets in general, yeah. And they hit that limit like three years after they built Twitter. Pretty early on. And they had lifetime. to change their... It, that's why if you look at their, um, their tweet IDs now, they're not like... They're like MD5s. They're like... Or they're they're 64s. Yeah, they're yeah, like yeah. 64 characters or they have to be. characters or something like that. They have to be. Yeah. Yeah, if you're at the point where you need to worry about the differences between base 16 and base 64, then you can start worrying about scale. If you're not at that point yet, don't worry a little pretty well, about it. Well, the thing, I, I'm kind of of both sides. Like, I think the, the interesting thing about infrastructure in this, uh, this day and age is that there's becoming more infrastructure tools that are easier to use that satisfy the horizontal scaling model like Kubernetes and Amazon ECS and Lambda and cloud functions and all these things like Azure functions and Google Cloud functions and all these things that you can build applications that scale horizontally without thinking about it. Serverless is a good example. Kubernetes is a good example for hosted. But you can do these things easier. So it's becoming easier to make decisions that don't have as much impact on your life but that also sets you up for scale. 
but there's also you can always you can always over engineer it but i mean if you pick amazon ecs as your hosting you know provider of sorts you can scale and create auto scaling groups and do all kinds of things that make your application scale horizontally but using ecs at the get go may have and may incur your product like a to maybe if you've never touched it before, like a two to three week delay in setting it up. But in the long run, it can scale horizontally extremely, extremely large to where you have a lot more horizontal instances and a lot more ability to run clustered, auto-scaled, expandable infrastructure. So the point I'm trying to get at is that it's becoming easier to make decisions that allow you to scale than it used to be used to be that you had to actually like build and buy and pay for EC2 instances. If you're on Amazon, pay for EC2 instances, create auto scaling groups and pay money when they scale horizontally, pay double the amount of instance costs every time they expanded. You go from one server, we usually you'd start with two, scale to four, scale to eight, scale like, you know, the powers of two, whatever it is. And you're paying for all those instances. So every time it scales out, you're paying more money. But nowadays you can just pick technologies where these big providers, the Googles, the Amazons, the Azures, whatever of the world, are doing that work for you. Yes. And you still gain the benefits. Yes. So It it is much easier to start for scale now than it has ever been in the history of web development. That still does not necessarily mean that you should focus too much on scale at certain points in the product lifecycle, right? If you are asking the question of how much should we think about scaling at that point, you can kind of, to me, that's a that's almost like a coat smell of like, you could probably be okay with erring on the side of we don't need to scale that much at this point because you can always add it later. Mm-hmm. And granted, granted, it is a little bit of a technical debt situation where it becomes harder later to do it, but... It becomes immensely harder the more your product expands and the more users you get to make any kind of cut over to a new system. It's that's immensely true. harder and it affects your business. That's true. But the, the question that <clears throat> this point is making is, is almost at, especially at the beginning of building a product is you're, you have limited amount of resources. So you are put in the position of deciding, do I assign resources to building out potential scale or do I assign resources to building the product? Right? So those are two, that, that decision to me if you're asking that question, you should probably be building the product. You should probably focus more, not necessarily all, but more of your resources on building the product than maybe you think. Because if you are even a little bit too much in the other direction where you're focusing too much on scale, your product is going to suffer and you're never going to have the problems with scale. I mean, it is an inverse relationship, but I can, I can tell you, if you don't think about scale... You will you will eventually run into an issue where you have to cut over to a new system, and your customers will be affected because the system can never be the same as the unscalable solution. You're always going to have to change architecturally. I think that there is. I agree with you. We've done that before. It's hard. It's not fun. It takes a long time. I feel like that there's got to be some sort of like MVP of scale. There is. There is. Right. There's got to be a like a, a minimum set of like as long as you make this number of decisions, you have not eliminated. You've eliminated a lot of the heartache that you could theoretically potentially. I can give you some easy ones. Here's here's another infrastructure one that is pretty obvious. If you're building any kind of application on virtual servers, let's just say you're on Amazon, right? Because 
you're probably, let's just say you're going to make the decision that you don't want to go with ECS. You don't want to deal with Docker. You don't want to deal with the registry. You don't want to set up a cluster. You don't want to set up like a workload. You don't want to do any of those things in ECS. You just want to create an instance. If you don't put a load balancer in front of that instance, you're already failing. But if you at least put a load balancer in front of it and you tie your DNS record to the load balancer, you've already thought about scale well enough. Yeah, that's that's the that's minimum, the minimum level. viable product. Yeah, that's the minimum level of scale that you have to think about. I would, I will, I agree with you on that point. I would, I kind of wonder about maybe even at a lower level of the application. Like, what if we're at the point where we don't even necessarily have like multiple servers serving our app? Well, if you don't think about making your app stateless to where it can run on multiple servers, I guarantee you're going to fail. That's why, like, things like Laravel and the 12 factor app that Heroku popularized, those things were created so that you can create applications that work statelessly. So you don't, a couple obvious rules. Don't use anything that stores session to the hard drive of the device you're on. Yeah, don't do that. Because you're not going to have the hard drive across multiple devices. So don't just don't do it. Don't rely on anything that stores session and memory because you're not going to have it. That's why they created Redis. Yeah, don't do that either. And then even with Redis, and this is where we're probably getting into the gray area of thinking too much of it, but even with Redis, it's hard to scale Redis. So if you set up a Redis cluster, if you well, if you set up a Redis server, you don't have A, you don't have a cluster. But if you just used ElastiCache, which is essentially Redis on Amazon, well, you're okay because you can expand it. So you go with the managed products that allow you to do those things. So I don't know. There's, there's over-engineering. Like, do you really need that queue server to handle XYZ in your pipeline? Probably maybe not. But if you don't, if you don't build your workload in a way where like that particular aspect of like, say, your e-com application can be offloaded to a queue when you need to, well, then you don't have failover when those transactions fail. And you can't do returns or you can't refund somebody. You're not going to accidentally blow up though. You might. You never know. Well, There's a tons of companies who get to scale and then can't handle simple things like shipping and returns. Because they didn't think of it. Because all they had to do was use a warehouse management software that could have helped them do that. But they didn't pick it because it was too much work. Like There's plenty of examples where... The minute you hit an economy of scale, you're screwed because you can't expand and then your customers are affected. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to go invent the world's largest, like or the world's most complicated like software management solution to like do these things. But there's ways to pick providers that provide these tools to you that do things for you. Like, are you going to write your own push notifications? You're going to use Urban Airship. There's a decision you made that relates to scale. Boom, done. Like you can, you can just pick the product that you pay for and you can... If you really are a funded startup and you have money, you can just pick the product that costs more and then engineer a solution to save money later or don't. When you have more money. When you have more money and then you can make a decision. But you can also pay too much money for the services and then run out of money because you paid for the most expensive services. So I don't know. It could go either way. But then again, are you going to go and like build your own like deployment model or are you going to go build the Jenkins server on day one or are you going to use Travis or CircleCI or are you going to deploy things with the shell script? Like those are decisions you can make, but you know, the, the shell script is not a very good example because the shell script that you write to do deployments can literally be put on Travis with a little bit of work and it can be yep. in the cloud. So it's like you think that's not, that's a situation <clears throat> where you think that setting up Travis or, or Circle is more work, quote unquote, more work, but it's really not. It's not because you're already writing. And the it scripts. gives you're already writing the scripts anyway, so you might as well do it. That yeah. that is that is kind of what I'm talking about. That's a great example. But it's of making smart decisions. Minimum yeah, you, scalable product MSP. But, the, but you think about like what is the 
what is the minimum? Like here are the here are my drop dead minimums. Like what is the minimum you need for an application server? The app has to be stateless. It has to be behind a load balancer so that you can add more servers. Yes, because you can't you can't add the load balancer later. Well, you can't without a DNS record, and then customers are yeah, affected. Yeah, and that's a, that's a problem. But what you could always do if you added a load balancer is you can cl- you can take an image of the hard drive, uh, like an EBS volume backup on Amazon of the drive that is running while it's running because Amazon's amazing, and then you can spin up another server with the same hard drive and attach it to the load balancer. Now you have two servers. Boom. You can do that without even with with hopefully not affecting your services, and all of a sudden your services have another instance to deal with. Or you can, or you can go through the trouble of setting up an auto scaling group, create an EBS backup, and have them automatically scale between two and four servers. That takes more time, but you can manually spin up another one. There's a there's a balance even in the decision making of what the, those minimum things are. In between, like there's always going to be kind of there's this minimum route of like this is the least amount of work you have to do in order for the app to work at all, mm-hmm. and then there's like the next tier up of we can do this thing that costs this additional amount of money and this additional amount of resources, but we get all this other stuff on top of it. Yeah. So when you kind of find this balance of the most return on the amount of additional resources that you invest into a certain process when it comes to scale, I think looking for not necessarily the least amount of work that you can do, but the most value mm-hmm. per resource. Yeah. work that you can do. Though, though, that's the way that you want to kind of evaluate the way that. that. The way that someone who I think is is decently good at this explained it to me is that you never, you don't necessarily need to build like, this. Is, these are not his words, but you don't necessarily need to build the Taj Mahal. You just need to make sure that you don't put like a shitty building where you want to put the Taj Mahal's like second tower. Like you got to think of like, what are ways that you, that's probably a pretty bad, pretty bad example, but like you don't build things that block you from building what you want to build. Yes, that's a, okay. That's you, you that's a great point. You yes. don't back yourself into a thermal corner. You just <laughs> you just uh, you make sure that the doors are still open, but you don't have to build the doors. Yeah, you could get out of your own way. Get out of your own way, and then if you get out of your own way early enough within the actual application code, then you can expand later. And there's a lot of things like Create React App for like a React application sufficiently does that because reacted itself is expandable and composable. Yeah. And it doesn't prevent you from going back later and doing an entire custom webpack build with nope. Just delete the webpack build and or create webpack.config too and then you know you switch it. But if you pick jQuery, it's gonna be a problem. So don't do that. Oh sure. Let's keep let's keep moving uh let's keep moving down this list. Create an inspiring environment setup. We've we've talked about this quite a bit about how the quality of our monitors makes us feel better. (laughs) Well, that's like directly, but I think it gets bigger than that. But yeah, I mean, you have to think about ways that you can, you can, you can design your space to where it's conducive of you doing work. So if yes. you're at home and you know you have like a gaming PC right next to you with Destiny Two installed and just waiting for you to play, don't work on that. Well, that's why I have or, two, that's why I have two drives to work on a completely separate hard drive that yes. you cannot access the game from. Yeah, that's now a great now idea. Seeing it because then you can boot into Linux and. I'm not going to turn on that game. Work, work, work all day on Linux. Yeah. So the way that this one, number 91 on the list, create an inspiring environment slash setup. The way that this manifests for me is kind of the, I don't want to say touch points because it's not all the touch points, but like the, the way that 
the peripherals that I use and way that I interact with my machines kind You're of such has, an ergos man. He's just sitting here waving his arms out. It's like, kind of like I'm touching kind of my like. I'm touching kind of, my keyboard. The ergonomics actually is kind of a big deal, right? The way that we sit in our chairs, the like the how comfortable we are in how we use things directly impacts the effectiveness of how we use them. I actually totally agree with you. This Does that is make why, sense? This is why I obsess over my color schemes. My this colors. is why I obsess over keyboards. Keyboards is is probably the easiest way to easiest one thing to. to I can look type at. on any keyboard as long as my. Uh, color scheme looks good <laughs> yes that that's also i mean that's also part of it right um which mine are finally dope i showed you earlier some people it's like having plants in the vicinity or like having yeah. sunlight having a window vicinity. being able to look outside being yes. able to look 20 feet away from you yes i'm very lucky in that i have a fantastic view from my desk um and i get a ton of sunlight in the mornings um thankfully not directly into my eyeballs necessarily but a lot of light directly in my face it feels good um but there's something that is not mechanical or measurable about that sort of impact, but it is real and it doesn't exist. And so um, I would just say that if you're kind of, if you've been ignoring your ergonomics, we have a great episode talking all about that. We'll put mm-hmm. a link to that in the show notes. I mean, I maybe think- make some tweaks to, to, to how you sit or how high your monitors are. Just maybe little things and just see how they feel and see yeah. if they make you feel better. Um, one thing for me that had a surprising amount of impact was I, when I first started using my current mechanical keyboard at work, uh, I bought a, a wrist rest for it. I bought one of those wooden wrist rests that just kind of elevates your wrist a little bit higher. Made all the difference in the world. Yeah, I have the glorious PC gaming, the thin one. They make a tall one. They make a tall they one. they make a thin one. But you have the squishy ones. Yeah. I have the wood one. Yeah. I have a wood one because the, the point of the wrist rest for me was not necessarily the pressure on my wrist, but the angle. Mm. Right, so I've been typing on the the little Mac, the really thin Mac keyboards for such a long time, and they're so low to the table is that when you have your wrists on the table typing on them, they're at the correct angle. Nicer mechanical keyboards are a little bit taller, especially mm-hmm. in the front. Yeah, it, so what it happens took me a long is that time your wrist is a little bit taller. So what the wrist rest does, it just elevates your wrist just a little bit, so it strains out the angle here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it took Made me a, a while. Difference. Like, when I first got the mechanical at home, I was like, oh my god, did I make a mistake? Because the keys were just so much higher that it was completely It feels different. weird. The height is completely different. completely yeah. changes the angle of your wrist, which can completely mess you up. But and fortunately with gaming, I only hit the WASD keys. Yeah, that's true. Q and F. I keep telling you G. that's why you could probably go 60% if you wanted to, but... No, I, I like my ducky. Okay. Nowadays, All right. I'm just amazing. saying. I'm just saying. Smaller keyboards are, uh, are kind of a fun thing. Anyway, I would say don't ignore the effect of having an environment or a setup that makes you feel good about yourself. Um... I know you're not a sports person, but there was a NFL mm, player, sports. Deion Sanders. I think several I, years didn't he still ago, play for the Dolphins or something. He used to play for the Falcons. He played for several teams, but he said, very famously said, "If you look good, mm-hmm. you feel good. If you feel good, you play good. If you play good, they pay you good." So just keep that in mind. Mm. The way that you feel about yourself does have a very big impact on the effectiveness of your work and your enjoyment of your work. So just maybe think about it a little bit. That's what I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Greg, we're coming up to the end of this list. Do you see any uh, other ones we should talk about? Uh, well, no, 94 I do all the time. Continuously reassess your workflow. Okay, I don't think she's talking about look at every single color scheme on the planet Earth and make sure you have the correct one. No, no, I, <laughs> I, uh, I have that under control. Okay, that's good. What, what other parts of your workflow do you think? I mean, you I, just like, I just think about like 
you know, I'm always thinking about like, if, if something, you know what it is, is if something doesn't feel right, then I want to change it. If there's no alternative, it annoys me. Yes. But if there's an alternative that's better, I want to use it. So whenever something isn't working quite right or doesn't do what I want it to do for whatever reason, then I try to find alternatives. And until an alternative comes out, I use the best thing for that particular task. That you can find, yeah. That I can find at the time. So recently, I switched back to using Sublime. Oh. Text 3. Oh. As my scratch pad. We've talked a lot about how I have IntelliJ for big stuff. And then I have some kind of text editor for um, scratch pad editing, small little projects, small little work, like things that I'm just messing with, whatever. I switched back to Sublime and, oh my God, it is so much faster. And that speed just makes the difference. It makes such a huge difference. It makes a massive difference. I don't even care about the plugins that are in VS Code. I think Adam is the thing that really ruined it. Because I was using Sublime Text before Adam came out. Right. And then there was that lull for a minute in Sublime Text development, which I don't think they, I don't think they're really, I mean, it works, but they're not changing a lot of stuff about it, as far as I know. Um, I don't really keep up with looking. But they're not really changing a lot of things in it. So it's like kind of in a lull again. But that lull at that time and the fact that it was like missing plugins and Adam came out and had all these things for React and all these cool plugins and better color schemes. And it was made by GitHub. It was such made a big, by GitHub cool and it thing. Was cool. You know, that whole thing led us into this world of where, yeah, it was cool, but it was like stupidly slow and it couldn't open large files and it would, it would crash. crash when you, you try to search your code When you base, open yes. a JSON, if you had like a lot of JSON files in your thing and you search your code base, it would crash, all these things, whatever. All that happened. And then VS Code came out, and it's fast. I got to hand it to them. They built a really fast thing, but it's never jived with me. I've never liked it. It's never going to be as fast as Sublime. It's not that. I've just never liked it because IntelliJ is not fast. It is fast mm. at searching because it indexes, but the actual editor is not like a lightweight, light-feeling editor. But That's true. There's just something about Sublime with the combination of speed, the simplicity, just the fact that it was the original one with all the cool key bindings, all the, the key maps are based off Sublime. It's like your home, man. There's a bit, I agree with you, that there is a significant amount of nostalgic muscle memory that is associated with opening Sublime text for me. Yeah. There is like, I wrote my first line of JavaScript in this editor. I wrote my first line of... I wrote my first line of JavaScript in a small trial. Small trial. <laughs> the greatest editor of all time. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I wrote my first React app in Sublime too. I wrote my first React app in Adam. I still to this day use the Sublime text key bindings in VS Code and any other editor. Like that's a non-starter for me. If, if any, if Smoltron doesn't have the Sublime text key bindings, I can't use it. I just mm. can't because those things are so ingrained into how I think about manipulating text in a text file that I literally cannot write code without them. So yeah, I agree with you. Going back to Sublime text feels like going home. I'm glad that after all this time that you've been able to go back and have good experience with it. There was a time, I mean, recently, I mean, I was writing, I was writing React where uh, Sublime text was still my day-to-day editor. And this was kind of right when VS Code started taking off and started becoming very, very popular. And it was very clear that Microsoft was dedicating a significant amount of resources to make it work well. You know, one of the things that I really hate about VS Code. What's that? <clears throat> in Sublime Text, 
you can change the syntax of a file with the command palette. Yes. You can't do it in VS Code, and you I can't, don't know you have why. To, you have to click you on click the thing. You click on the damn thing. Oh. That's the one thing that I just... The other thing is... I ran into the other day, and I totally get your frustration It happens to me all the time because yep. it doesn't know what the freaking files are, especially the one that always gets me is people who write JSX and .js extensions. They're not the same thing. The, J the JS syntax highlighters do not understand JSX. They don't always. Although the built-in Visual Studio Code one does. Well, I, They have sure. one called JavaScript React, so it just assumes that all JavaScript that you write, even in but, .js files, is just React and code codes it that way. <laughs> I mean, that does work. That is a fair assumption. But yeah. it doesn't do it by default so that you open up files and it's like, it doesn't have emit completion or the whatever. The colors are all wrong. It doesn't know that you have to close your tags or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I totally get it. It annoys me. And then I'm like, well, in Sublime Text, what I used to do is just hit command shift P syntax and then like type SY and then it would be there. Yes. And then I would type GSX, hit enter, and it's done. Yes. Don't have to touch a mouse. Give, give me that Give me that good command palette commandness. Yeah, That's you good. should create an issue on VS Code and then yell at yourself about doing it. Anyways. The the <laughs> auto detect of like how it freaks out because I've had projects I'm working on a project now that has both React and Angular elements in it and it's actually been pretty good about figuring out how to syntax highlight based on the context of what's in the actual file itself. It's actually pretty smart, so I give them credit for that. But you're totally right; it should be something that is accessible from within the command palette, so I do not have to click on stuff with my trackball. The other thing that's really cool about Sublime Text is that the command palette is way faster, but it does have less options. and uh, It has fewer options. It's a little bit, I would say it's a little bit clunkier um, for whatever reason. I thought, um, it's a little bit clunky when it opens up because it has to open up sub lists of things, sub searchers. So like if you do like package control install package, you have to like wait for that thing to go away and then pop up another box. Yeah. The, that kind of stuff is annoying. But the actual just reaction of the typing in the actual editor itself or the highlighting with your keys or clicking on stuff. In Sublime Text? In Sublime Text. That That's is super fast. Oh, I thought you were going to say the other way around. No, no, no. That stuff is... Yeah. The I would say it's the fastest around. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, can open, it can open any file really, really fast. And I also bound the... I hate the command, the, the command, that, you, the command that you have to actually install yourself by creating a symlink to install the subl command. You oh, to, yeah. Like, do it with the symlink yourself. That's annoying. I created an alias for it that's just S. So now in my terminal, I just type S dot and it opens it. Do you not like mess that up on accident? Like when you go to type something and you actually hit at, like enter after you hit S or something? No. Oh. I don't have these problems. I mean, I might with my vortex. I always miss keys in my vortex. I'm, I'm not happy with it. I'm I think I, I see your, where you're coming from with both Sublime and the vortex keyboard. Um, one thing I will say with Sublime is that um, I haven't used it in a while. I think I might... You've inspired me. I, think I, I, might go I do think it that the if you're writing a lot of React, I think VS and especially TypeScript, VS Code, because of IntelliSense, which Microsoft created a long time ago in the actual Visual Studio, I think is better. The auto completion is better. That kind of stuff is better because Microsoft's technology is good. But so I think it might actually be worse to work in React with it potentially. If you rely on a lot of the IntelliSense stuff. It depends on what you're doing, yes. But if you're not like relying on IntelliSense and you're just like writing stuff really quick, it's definitely fast. But like I said, I, when I, what I want my, my non-project editor to do 
is just quickly open things from terminal, pop up like s dot whatever, open open this file, and let me edit it really really quickly. That's what I want, and it does it really well, and it opens up things really really fast. And I've never really, I've just never drived well with Visual Studio. Something about it I just never liked. I think I understand where you're coming from there with VS Code because I've, I always felt the same way with Atom. I actually liked Atom, but it was way too slow. If they could make Atom as fast as VS Code, I would use Atom. Atom what, never jived with me, and it had nothing to do with the performance. I mean, the performance was an easy excuse for me to hate on it, but I don't know what it was. I just, the, I think the, the proportions of, like the text and like the way the tabs were and like the way the menus looked, it just didn't feel, it just felt foreign. It just felt weird. And maybe that was just me being so used to sublime text that I couldn't switch anything else. I mean, I definitely switched from sublime to Adam. I liked how, I liked how it looked and I liked how it worked. I didn't like how fast it was. Well, the lack of fastness. The last lack of fastness, the opposite of fastness. Yeah. Yeah, Occam's, it was just Occam's weird. Fastness. It, was, it was weird. It was just so strange because Sublime Text is so good with like full code base searches and like opening large files and anything that I still to this day don't like how Sublime search results create a new file. It's a weird look, and then right? It pens things to it. I it's never a little bit that. strange. I love IntelliJs. If you've never used IntelliJs full project search, it's amazing. It creates a little pop up modal that you can make any size and doesn't go away if you just click out of it. It's like it creates like almost like another window. I have seen it, yes. And I, then it highlights things for you in the code and you can actually edit things in the search results. I save them. That's pretty nice. That is one of the coolest things of IntelliJ. That is pretty nice. The, the VS Code setup, I think, works pretty well too where the search results come in on the sidebar. No, I never liked it. And then it opens the... My if favorite, you click on something, it'll open the file. Yeah. And you can also collapse the search results. I my think favorite is, is IntelliJ. IntelliJ's search and editing features. Like, you can do find, like find and replaces, like full text, full bot project find and replaces that you used to do, and that I used to do a lot in Sublime. Because Sublime is really cool because you could do regex searches and regex yes. replacements, which is really nice. It's really good for manipulating lots of files or just changing like straight like, in the like, search yeah yeah if you're like i need to change this import across the whole project you can command f search the whole import and fuzzy match the projects and like you know if you want to change from like single to double spaces on your imports you could do it with a regex or whatever like i would do all that kind of stuff but it just it would put the results and then the replacements in that stupid fake tab but with intellij it just it'll highlight all the matches and you can scroll through them all in the window. All of them are highlighted. Replace them and all of them are changed. And then you can just command Z them all, which I know you can do in Sublime Text. And actually, Sublime Text, you no, Sublime can't Text, undo them all. It'll, it'll open up all the tabs and not save them. No, but you can go back into the find replace and just there's a button that flips it. Not if you've so already done the replacement. It. No, but it, it'll, no, it'll reverse it and then you just reverse it. Yo, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but that assumes that the regex for the replacement is the same as the searcher but uh, whatever the point yeah. is i never liked how it'll open up like 900 tabs you gotta save them all save on uh save on focus loss man <laughs> you can say there's a there's like an option where you can like save and close all or whatever but i don't know i just never liked that yeah but with intellij it just does it and you can command z all of them it's it's a really good it's really that's, really that's good editor. my uh, color scheme is really nice for it too oh that's good very important really good all right we're we've made it to no, I think we're done. 101 here. Are there any other ones here that you want to talk about? We should save. We could save them for another pod. Part two. If you want to get in touch with Greg and avoid all the farewells, 
He is at Gorski. I'm at Al Park. The show is at a public function. Reiterating from earlier in the episode, we are so glad that you have joined us on our journey. We are on episode number 30, 31st episode. We are so happy that you have listened to us today and or any other day, any other episode of our show. If you'd like to listen to us on the internet, publicfunction.show. This is episode 30, like I said, backslash zero three zero. All the show notes, all of the tags, all the links, pictures of our smiling faces will be there. You can contact us via the contact form, publicfunction.show backslash contact, or email us, hello at publicfunction.show. We post new episodes of this show every Tuesday, every single week, coming into your podcast player of choice. Download it there, listen to it there. Join us on the Discord. We've got links to that in the show notes. Listen to us on the web also at dev.2, which is where we got our wonderful article today. We'll have links to everything in the show notes. Greg, do you have anything else for us? 1,000 voices. Pretty excellent stuff. Greg, see you next week. <laughs> yeah, see you.